0: ...of how God created the world, and then how the world went so horribly, horribly wrong. How the world got caught in a deadly tailspin, a downward spiral, and that God called Abram to be the father of that people by which he would bring a great reversal to that downward spiral. God promised Abram in Genesis 12 that he would be blessed... And he would also be a blessing. He would be a blessing to all the nations. Through Abram's family would come the redemption of this broken, dying, fallen world. Today we're going to look a little bit more at the family of Abraham. We're going to look at this family that's been marked out, that's been chosen by God to redeem this world. And we're going to look at, particularly, one specific way that family is different from the other families of this world. It may be helpful to think about these things in the light of what Paul said in Galatians. We touched on this last week, that anyone who is in Christ is a son of Abraham. If you belong to Christ, you are a son of Abraham regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of any of those things, if you belong to Christ, Abraham's story and the story of Abraham's family is your story. So keep that in mind as we as we look at this. We're not looking just at a bunch of stories about people from a long time ago in a place far far away, but we're talking about a story that You are now a character in. To give you a direction about where we're going with this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be moving first into sort of the big picture look at Genesis and how does, how does Genesis work. Then I'm gonna move into sort of the background to our text, our text being Genesis 33. Then, we'll move into the text itself, and we'll take a real close look at that. And then from there, we'll look at how does how does this affect us? How should it affect us? What is our part in this larger story that we're seeing beginning right here before our eyes in Genesis? The first thing I want you to see in this big picture is that there's something very different about Abram's family. As we said last week, there's the downward spiral of Genesis 1 through 11, but there's one specific aspect of that spiral that I would like to draw your attention to. There's a downward spiral of violence and revenge and retribution in Genesis 1 through 11. You see this well enough in that after the fall, immediately, you move into the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain murders his brother out of feeling as though he is somewhat inferior to him because his offering is not accepted while Abel's is. So you have brother, murdering brother, right at the outset. Cain is banished, and seven generations from Cain, you have his great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Lamech. And Lamech is more vengeful than Cain ever was. And what's more... He sings about it. He sings to his wives. He says, "Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is a poem. He sings about it. He's proud and brash about how his revenge is greater than that of his ancestors. Is it any wonder, with things moving in that direction, that by Genesis 6, God could say that the whole world was filled with violence? There's a trajectory here. It's a downward spiral. But that changes in Abraham. Not because of anything in Abraham. As we said last week, Abraham was an unlikely candidate for being called by God. He began as a pagan. He had to learn faithfulness. There's a change in the people of Genesis 1 through 11. And the people that belong to Abraham's family. Not because of anything in Abraham. But because of God and God's faithfulness. Because God has chosen this family to set them apart and to work in them, to be faithful to his promises to them and to transform them. And one specific way in which these people are different is that in them you see an upward spiral of reconciliation, forgiveness. You can see this a bit in Abraham's own life. In Genesis 13, after Abram received the promises and moved into the land after a short stay in Egypt, fights begin to break out between, between his shepherds and the shepherds of his nephew, Lot. Lot had been uh, orphaned. Abram's brother had died, and so Abram took Lot under his wing, took care of him. And in Genesis 13, their people begin to fight amongst each other. And Abram comes to Lot and he says, Lot, let there not be dissension amongst us. You have the whole land before you. All that's mine, take what you wish. And Lot, rather than deferring to Abram and saying, you've been so good to me, you take the better part. Lot takes the better part and leaves Abram with the scraps. Nevertheless, in the next chapter, when war breaks out and Lot is taken captive, it's Abram who comes to rescue him. Abram is the one who takes up arms to come to his rescue. Or later on down the road, when Lot gets in trouble again, because he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he hears the announcement that God is going to destroy this land, it's Abram who steps in and intervenes, who intercedes on the part of his nephew Lot, this nephew who had treated Abram pretty poorly. You can see this again also in Jacob and Esau, the story of Jacob and Esau, which we will be focusing on today. Jacob swindles his older brother out of his blessing and out of his birthright, basically out of his family fortune. But by Genesis 33, Esau forgives him unconditionally and on his own accord. You can see this again in Joseph. Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37, they cast him into a pit and they sell him into slavery. But by Genesis 45, when Joseph meets his brothers again, he forgives them. And Not only does he forgive them, he provides for their every need. He brings them into Egypt and he says, take of the fat of the land. Anything you see, it's yours. I'll see to it that you're taken care of. That's the broad picture of Genesis that I'd like you to see, that there's a contrast between brother murdering brother, someone singing of revenge, and a world filled with violence in Genesis 1 through 11, and the actions of this one family in Genesis 12 through 50. With that, let's look at Jacob and Esau's story a little bit closer. Jacob, at the first, swindled his brother out of his birthright. From there, Jacob stole his brother's blessing. The blessing was a big deal. We may not think of that as a big deal these days because we don't really We don't really deal in blessings a great deal. Um, The blessing in those days was seen as a means by which your destiny was sealed. What the father blessed you with, God would honor. So the better blessing was reserved for the older brother. It was your inheritance. It was basically a guarantee towards the family fortune. And Jacob, by intrigue, stole Esau's blessing. He tricked Jacob and Esau's father into giving him Esau's blessing. Esau was distraught, obviously. He'd lost the family fortune. What was left to him? Part of this blessing was that Esau would be Jacob's servant. That would be distressing. And Esau's blessing, having gotten basically the table scraps, what was left over, is he's promised he'll be a warrior. He's promised that he will be a man who lives by the sword. And he's promised also that one day he will break the yoke of Jacob off of his neck. Now, obviously, Esau being angry, begins to plot in his heart that he will kill Jacob as soon as Isaac has died, their father. As soon as dad is out of the way... I will see to it that Jacob is bumped off. And he could, because as we've said, Esau was a man of the sword. Jacob's mother gets wind of this, and she warns Jacob. She says, Jacob, you need to get out of here, because your brother's plotting to kill you. What you need to do is you need to go stay with my brother, and don't come back until you receive word from me that it's safe. So Jacob goes. And he's gone for 20 years, and he builds a life for himself. The blessing that his father had given to him is fulfilled, and Jacob becomes very wealthy. But then God calls Jacob to come back to Esau's territory. So in Genesis 32, Jacob heads back, and as he's heading back towards Esau's territory, he gets wind that his warrior brother Esau is looking for him. But he's not looking for him alone. His brother Esau is looking for him and is accompanied by 400 men. This is not good news. So, if you look at the ESV heading for chapter 32, Jacob fears Esau. That's a good summary. <laughs> Jacob fears This angry brother, who the last he heard was planning to kill him, and he's never gotten word from Rebecca that it's safe to come home, and yet here he's coming, as far as he knows, as soon as he sees Esau, he's a goner. And so Jacob worries. And Jacob gets together a gift. Hopefully he can appease his brother. Hopefully he can just kind of... Give him a couple hundred goats, a couple hundred cows, uh, a couple hundred servants, and then, and then hopefully Esau will let bygones be bygones and, and, and not kill him. And so that's what he does. He sends a bunch of goats and cows and sheep and this large gift to Esau in order to make amends. And then we pick up with our text. Verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was still coming, and 400 men were still with him. It doesn't seem like the gift has worked. It still looks a whole lot like Esau's coming, Esau's angry, and Esau's not alone. But now it's time to face the music for Jacob. So he gathers his family and he organizes them. He organizes the children by putting them with their respective mothers. And he prepares to formally introduce Esau to his family in hopes that as soon as they get eye to eye, Esau doesn't come in swinging. And then we have a great surprise. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Whoa. That's a surprise. Up till now, the story's been building up all the while, building up tension and suspense so that you're expecting the worst for when Esau meets Jacob. And Esau runs at him. But he doesn't run at him with a sword. He runs at him with an embrace. Something's happened to Esau between Genesis 27 and Genesis 33. And we don't know what that is. But part of that is just that he's a son of Abraham. And sons of Abraham don't do things the way the sons of Adam did in Genesis 1-11. through 11. You look at verse 5-7. through 7. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau says, who's this with you? Introduce me to the family. This is reconciliation. This is long lost brothers being introduced to long lost brothers and their families. Then Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? When he says company, he's referring to all the goats and the sheep and the servants and all this stuff that Jacob had pushed in Esau's direction very recently. And, and it's funny, he makes a play on words. He says, what is this, what do you mean by this company that I met? It's company, this word means basically army or a camp. He's, What's with the army of goats? But Esau knew full well what it was. Each of the servants was to tell Esau as they met him, we're a gift to you from Jacob and our master is with us. He's, he's, going to meet you in a little bit. Esau knew that it was a gift, but his response is just, what's this? Why this lavish gift? I don't understand. And Jacob also is surprised that I gave you this to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But here's something very revealing. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now consider this. All of the wealth that Jacob had amassed over his time with Laban was the result of the blessing that he had stolen from Esau. His fortune was made off of what he had pilfered from his brother. And now this gift is in part giving him back what was rightfully his. And Esau's response is not, well, that's right. It's mine. I have every right to take it. His response is, I have enough, my brother. Keep it. Consider that. Say you had a friend and they swindled you out of a couple thousand dollars or so. Ask yourself, would you move to reconcile with that person? Would you invite them over? Would you have barbecues with them? Would your kids play with their kids? And if they offered to you what they had taken from you, would you say, nah, that's okay. Don't sweat it. You keep it. I've got enough. There's a very telling difference between Lamech, who wants to be avenged 77-fold for what is taken from him, and Esau, who refuses reparations. Look again at verse 10 through 11. Jacob insists, take it. This is for you. Why? For I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Jacob looks at Esau and he says, looking at you is like looking at God. Why would he say that? Well, he's echoing Genesis 32.30. In the previous chapter, as Jacob is spreading over about what's going to happen the next day when he meets his brother, he prays and he meets God and he wrestles with God. And he begs God for a blessing. And not only does he get the blessing, but he gets a new name and he gets a busted hip. But Jacob says about God this. He names the place where he met God, face of God, Peniel. And he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So that in the next chapter, when he sees Esau, after all these years, expecting to be met with a sword, expecting to be cut down by an army of 400 men, and then being embraced and kissed and forgiven, you're like the God I saw last night. You're like God. You have every right to destroy me, and you don't. By extending mercy and reconciliation and welcome to his long-lost brother, Esau was seen to be like God. And doesn't that sound like what Jesus told us? Doesn't that sound like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God? Or... And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Being a peacemaker, being one who prays for your enemies and those who persecute you, being one who is, one who makes the move towards reconciliation, in that you reflect the character of your Heavenly Father. So let's take stock at what we've looked at so far. We see in Genesis humanity, the sons of Adam, the whole world, caught in the downward spiral of violence and retribution, the whirlpool of brother-murdering brother, the vicious circle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but not so with the sons of Abraham. Not so with them, no. In Abraham, we see the beginning of a new way of being human. We see in the sons of Abraham the beginnings of that way through which all the nations will be blessed. That subversive and counterintuitive way of going the extra mile, giving the second tunic, turning the other cheek, praying for those who persecute you, forgiving when wronged, being a peacemaker. That way... By which you are sons of your Heavenly Father. And you show others, by your actions, His character. As we've said before, this story is not just their story back then, way over there. That's to be our story. We are part of this. Remember Genesis Galatians 3.8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Or, Galatians 3.28-29, through 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Do you hear that? In Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. In Christ, you share in his blessing, you share in his calling, you share in his character. You are part of that great reversal, reversing the downward spiral of violence and revenge and retribution. Or are you? Is it the case That someone could look at this world caught up in that hailsting. And they would look at you and say, Not so with him. Not so with her. Not so with those who belong to Christ. Not so with the sons of Abraham. Is it the case that they could do that? Or, do they look at you and they say, they're not so different look he still holds that grudge after all of these years she still won't talk to so and so in the office after they had that falling out not 3 weeks ago he delights in revenge she revels in retribution She still talks about so-and-so and and how so-and-so wronged her after all these years. Sure, she says, oh, I've forgiven so-and-so in my heart, but then she goes on and on and on about what so-and-so did to need forgiveness in the first place. This is a question. Do you delight in revenge? Do you delight in, in, in the thought of this person or that person finally got his. That's a, that's a tough question to face. Do you have a heart like Cain or Lamech? Or are you different? And this is one test that just kind of struck me yesterday. There's an article that I read last week. Many of you know that last week Abu Musab al Zarqawi was killed in a Bombing in Iraq. And I found this article pretty much the next day, and I'll just read parts of it to you. The father of Nicholas Berg, hear that, fathers, hear that. The father of Nicholas Berg, a U.S. contractor believed to have been beheaded by Abu Musab al Zarqawi in Iraq said Thursday that al-Zarqawi's killing will only perpetuate the cycle of violence in the Middle East. I think al-Zarqawi's death is a double tragedy, Michael Berg told the Associated Press after learning a U.S. airstrike had killed the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. His death will incite a new wave of revenge. Al-Zarqawi is believed to have beheaded two Americans... Nicholas Berg, Eugene Armstrong, and then another, Jack Hensley. Um, Think of that, fathers. Would you be able to see the death of the man who put your son under the knife as a tragedy? There's another line here from a pastor in Georgia. He said, I think in this case justice has finally been served, and that it had. Those are my words, that it had. But the question becomes, when you hear about that and when you think about that, do you think Al-Zarqawi got his and that's it? When you reflect upon the fact that there was a wife that was widowed, and there were children that were orphaned, And that there was a soul that was lost to the fires of damnation forever when those bombs went off. If there's not a glimmer of remorse, if there's not a hint of regret that it came to that, as horrible as it is and as necessary as it was, if you don't grieve over it at all, that's bad. If all you can think is good, I'm glad. And that's all? There's something wrong with that. How different is that from Jesus who could look down on a bunch of Roman soldiers who had trampled over his country, occupied his land, massacred his people repeatedly over the centuries, and who on that day had flogged him, stripped him naked, and nailed him to a Roman gallows? And say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want a heart like that. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham, the gospel passed on and lived out by the sons of Abraham, to this day, is the message of reconciliation. This is how you walk as sons of Abraham, followers of Christ, new creations in the new humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. you are called not only to be reconciled to God, but to be agents of that reconciliation to others. As sons of Abraham, as new creations, you are called to be ambassadors of the one who gave everything to reconcile us to himself. Now hear me, I'm not saying that there's no such place for justice I'm not saying that justice was not done when those bombs went off. But I am saying that we might want to be able to pray for our enemies. To pray for those who would like to bomb us. Pray for those who would like to see our country destroyed. We need to be able to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. We need to be able to look down from a cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And how do we do that? How do we live out that sort of reconciliation-shaped lifestyle? It's not by... Merely speaking about reconciliation with God while delighting in revenge ourselves, but by walking in the way of forgiveness. Seeking out those in our lives who have wronged us. Seeking out those who have taken things from us that were rightfully ours and forgiving them. Seeking to make amends. Seeking to fix that broken relationship. Things are not always so simple. But when things are so complicated as to require bombs, let us grieve and not merely smile and think good. Let's be such that people will look at the violent ways of the world and then look at us and say, Not so with the sons of Abraham. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That when we murdered your son, you did not delight in retribution, but you reconciled us to yourself in Christ. We pray that you would change our hearts and change our actions, so that when people see our faces, it might be like seeing yours, and they would be reconciled to you. Amen. Amen.